This is episode number nine of the Paleo Women Podcast. Hey, friends. Thanks for joining us. I'm Noel Tarr, nutritional therapy practitioner and author of everything you'll find at coconutsandkettlebells.com. And I'm here with Stephanie Ruper, author of the best-selling book, Sexy by Nature, PCOS Unlocked, and Weight Loss Unlocked. And she's the crazy one behind paleoforwomen.com. Please keep in mind our disclaimer. The information on this podcast is intended to provide helpful and informative material and shouldn't be considered a substitute for medical advice or treatment of any kind. Hey! Hi, my name is Stephanie Ruper, and my co-host, Noelle Tarr, is an insane woman who I just barely managed to work with. What's up? Hey, You're hard hi. to deal with. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Thank you. I appreciate it. Keeping it real. That's all I got to say. Keeping it real. <laughs> What's going on with you? Oh, my God. So many things. Um... I, there's a giveaway that continues to be underway. I think when this comes out, it'll be in its final days. So go write a review of my book because please. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also you'll receive, uh, you'll be able to enter into a giveaway for lots of really cool um, paleo foods. And they're my favorites. And paleo companies are so fun to support because the people who run them are just the coolest. Yeah. So they really are. So that's exciting, and I'll get to see them very soon because Paleo FX is very soon, very, very soon. I haven't bought my plane ticket yet, which is starting to concern me. Um, you should probably get on that. I know. Well, I have a friend I'm staying with. He's my best, 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 best friend. and I thought I was your best friend. Oh, Am I only the best, best, best friend? I guess. It's okay. I'll take yeah. that. Best, best, best. Yeah, you get three bests. Okay. You're my best, best, best friend. Okay. Okay. And um, Evan is uh anyway he, he hasn't gotten back to me on dates yet so i'm oh, waiting okay. on that but whatever no big deal um the giveaway is underway and the sun is out today that's the weather i mean it's it's unusual for right now so it's pretty exciting but most importantly i just told noel and i want to tell you i just found out that um i got a grant from this really awesome super prestigious foundation called the templeton foundation and they're going to pay for me to like sit at a desk and stare at a piece of paper for three years at Oxford, which is really exciting. That's like my job. I sit at desks and I stare at paper and I'm like, mm, and I like squint my eyes and people are like, wow, she must be so deep in thought. I'm like, well, it does appear to be so. <laughs> That's okay. I'll, I'll keep them straight. I'll let them know what's really going on. Oh my God. I'm so good at looking like I'm like really intelligently thinking really hard i like you know i I do the pen flippy things i like i have all these you know but i I, what's actually going on inside i make no promises about you're just thinking about like ice cream and (laughs) i'm thinking about flies and i'm thinking about trader joe's (laughs) dried coconut lightly sweetened dried coconut lightly sweetened frozen mango chunks 269 a bag like Which I do, I do occasionally eat in one sitting. By the way, yeah. So, don't doubt that. No, 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 you wouldn't. You do know me well enough. But I'm super excited for you. I think that's awesome, and 
And the fact that you're going to be making, you're going to be making a little bit of money, right? Yeah. Well, they'll, they'll be paying. So in grad school, when you get like full funding, which is what I got, they intended to pay you just enough to live off of, you know? Yeah. But that's, that's great. That's all I need. I need to be able to pay to eat and to dance. (laughs) And I'm trying to make enough money to give it away to people who need it more than I do. Yeah. That's, that's really important to me too. But, um, one day at a time. <laughs> yep. You'll get there. Now, are you cycling? Have you tried that yet? Or, I mean, have you been cycling, working out? I have been. Okay. So this, maybe this can be a brief aside in paleo theorizing world. Um, I have been cycling daily, mostly daily for like a half hour, sometime around high noon, like noon or one o'clock. Um, I make sure I do like a tough workout on the bike and I've been taking a vitamin D capsule around that time every day. And I've, there's a lot of other things There could be anything. I've also got a Himalayan rock salt lamp and I don't know which of those three things or maybe something else entirely, but my sleep has just like, dramatically improved really? I don't I don't I don't know what to do with it I don't like saying it out loud I feel like I'm jinxing myself but oh that's so awesome though it's really surreal I mean I haven't I haven't felt like I got a good night's sleep in more than three years and for 98% of the days or more like I could count on two hands literally it's less than 10 the number of times that I slept eight hours in a row in the last three years Mm. except for the last week I don't know is it the it's like seriously am I like is it the salt lamp I'm like I'm really skeptical (laughs) about it but I can't I don't know what else it could maybe be yeah have you been have you ever done this type of of training before where you've done like high intensity stuff at at noonish or Uh, I mean I was never deliberate about it I used to work out all, all the time like all the time but this is the first time I've like deliberately put it in the middle of the day and I don't I don't know if that's it. I mean, yesterday there have been some days where I haven't exercised and I like slept or like the vitamin D. I just, I, I honestly have no idea. Well, that's good. Just keep doing it. I know. And, and crossing fingers and just hope it stays. I I definitely, I mean, obviously there's a ton of uh, literature that says how, or talks about how exercises improve sleep. I'm not usually a huge fan of sleep, of sleep, of working out, um, in the evening, like shortly before you're going to sleep. And a lot <laughs> like of do every day. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. So that could, that could be part of it. But yeah, I mean, trying to, if you're going to do training, which I would assume most people do, which is they include some sort of metabolic or an, anaerobic type of training where you are going to be secreting or needing adrenaline and cortisol and all of those things. It's kind of like counteracting what you should be doing in the evening, which is, Mm-hmm. slowly getting into uh, a resting state. So, yeah, I'm just – I don't – I'm not sure. I haven't really dug deep into the literature on that one, but it's just not something that I usually would recommend. So I I, I, I know that that's when some people can get their workout in, and it's like, cool, just do it. And if you have still have good sleep, then great. But if you're working on really hacking sleep, I think working out like – early morning or even that yeah midday is just fantastic so i'm sure that's part of it i'm i'm really interested though in the on the whole vitamin d is it emulsify is it can't you do what like how do you is it just a capsule what are you taking yeah it's just a like a little 
like a not even one of the gel caps. It's a little powdered pill, and I make sure I take some fat with it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I agree with you. Working out at night is terrible. I know, but I'm an addict, so. Well, it's it's what makes you happy and it's what you're doing right now. So maybe later on in life you won't do it as much as you do now or you'll have, you know, whatever. You'll have other things that you you like doing, so. Right. Well, it's crazy because I was planning on spending the next week or two not dancing at all at night. Like, that was the plan. I was supposed to start today, this Wednesday. I was going to take a whole week off and just see what happened, if it would improve my sleep. But I've been dancing every night for the last I don't know, 60 days. And, um, and, but for the last several days, I've been sleeping great. And I like, I wake up and I feel refreshed and I have energy during the days, which is, I, I can't, I can't even tell you how long it's been since I've (laughs) experienced that. So I'm, I'm perplexed and grateful. I don't know. Maybe it's because I'm happy about school. I have no idea. I was about to say that too. Who knows? Interesting. Well, we'll have to keep getting updates on that one. I, I, that's very interesting. Yeah, definitely. All right. Yeah. Let's move into some questions here. Talk okay. about things that people want to hear about. <laughs> no, but I'm so <laughs> interesting. <laughs> you are. You are. <laughs> I want to hear about it, Stephanie. I'm not sure if everybody else does. Oh, my goodness. I just Audience, just go to iTunes and write about how interesting you think I am because that'll – that's apparently all I need. Yep. Yep. <laughs> all right. Question number one is from Jason. Jason asks, hi, ladies. I heard you discuss carb backloading this past week, and it was incredibly helpful. I have a follow-up question for you relating to post-workout carbs. I keep hearing that fruit post-workout isn't the best option. I follow mostly paleo, real food diet, and prefer to eat food after my workouts. Oh, eat real food after my workouts. Because I'm typically on the go, my snacks after training in the morning typically include a banana or an apple with some almond butter and then some sort of protein. It's always within 30 minutes of finishing my workout. Should I really be concerned with continuing to eat fruit? Thanks. No. Okay. So I... (laughs) I, I don't know the science. I don't like study the literature of fitness very deeply often. What I do know is that the primary difference between fructose and glucose is the way in which it is processed when you eat it, right? So when you consume glucose, it can be transferred directly from your digestive system, from your guts into your blood and it's blood sugar, like boom, right away. It's blood sugar and then your body sees the blood sugar and it secretes insulin and the insulin will carry the blood sugar to your fat cells but also to your muscles, more importantly, because this is where we store like glycogen, right? And glycogen is what you burn in your muscles when you work out really hard and it's what you want to like replenish in your muscles. So when you consume glucose, you are like assured to replenish your glycogen like immediately. Now, if you consume fructose, this is digested by your body a little bit differently. It's selectively absorbed by um, special enzymes in your gut that send it to your liver first. 
so it does not like eek into your bloodstream and turn into blood sugar right away. Instead, it goes to the liver and it will replenish liver glycogen pretty immediately. And then uh, and then like leftover will, after it has been processed by the liver, be released into the bloodstream. And at that point, um, after it's been sort of metabolized into blood sugar, then the insulin will come and take it to um, your blood cells. But that's only, or sorry, not blood cells, fat cells. <laughs> but again, that's only after it has been like metabolized by the liver and changed into like a, a more, you know, blood sugary type thing. So your blood sugar response is slightly different. And like, if you look at the, the, um, what do they call it? GI, right? Like, um, why am I, why am I, why am I blanking on, on what it's called? The, the blood sugar response to... Oh, glycemic so, index. Is that what you're talking you. about? Yeah. Yes, glycemic index. If you look at that for different foods, like it's much lower for fructose than it is for, for glucose, and that's why. However, you still experience a blood sugar elevation when you uh, consume fruit, and that's partly because fructose still stimulates an insulin response, but also because fruit is not 100% fructose. It's a combination of fructose and glucose. And there are different fruits that have more glucose than fructose and whatever, but it doesn't really matter because all fruits have both. Um, you said that you have a banana or apple. Bananas are pretty high in glucose relative to fructose, so that's an excellent post-workout carb if you're looking to restore your muscle glycogen right away. Um, I don't personally feel like this is something to worry about anyway. You know, it's kind of like uh, playing with really fine details, maybe if you're like a bodybuilder and all of that sort of stuff. But for me, or for anybody who's just a person who likes to exercise sometimes, Fruit is like totally awesome and uh, does the job in terms of carbs. And in fact, if you're a woman, like I like certain, most people don't like the fact that fructose goes to the liver because they're like, oh my God, fatty liver disease. We're making the liver work too hard. I personally really like that fructose goes to the liver first because that's where thyroid hormone gets made. And I really like liver glycogen being full because... It, it, it just assures that thyroid hormone doesn't production doesn't suffer and sort of helps your body feel, you know, feel fed in that way. And of course, insulin helps your body feel fed as well. So um, there are positives and minuses to both both fructose and glucose. But like I said, fruit and even like all the sweet vegetables, you know, even sweet potatoes have both fructose and glucose in them. So um, just I think go ahead and keep doing what you're doing. And I'm certain that Noelle has a lot to say on this. So you know me so well. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just, I think uh, I did a little bit more in depth research on trying to figure out if there was, in fact, a different response between fructose and glucose, if it's been observed yet in, in studies and. Um, I just I found some interesting stuff because it I do feel like a lot of people, even within the paleo community, say this, say this, like don't eat fruit and you should prioritize starchy carbs. So 
so that I can explain it a little bit better, I just kind of want to go back down to basics. So if you're not familiar, fructose is just a simple sugar. It's a monosaccharide, mono equals one. So that's it's typically most found in um, fruit and honey and then some vegetables. And monosaccharides are sort of like the basic carbohydrate unit. And the two other basic carbohydrate monosaccharide units that are found in the body is glucose, which Steph was just talking about, and then galactose. So, and then these are, these are the building blocks for other carbohydrates like disaccharides, di meaning two, and then longer chain carbohydrates like polysaccharides. So, one of the popular simple sugars that's a disaccharide is sucrose, which is a combination of glucose and fructose together. So, fruit is typically the highest concentration of fructose. And then, when like Steph was saying, these starchy foods like sweet potatoes or squash, although they do contain other, like all types of sugars, they mostly contain um, most uh, glucose. So things like potatoes or squash or rice or whatever. And the whole idea is, oh, since glucose is sent to uh, peripheral tissues, so like muscle cells, and what we really want to do is replenish muscle cells post-workout, um, especially if we've done strength training, that's kind of our what we're trying to prioritize, then glucose is king and fructose is bad. But here's where things have gotten a little crazy. Um, there's recently been a large stink over fructose and like all the horrible things about it, specifically about it causing us uh, to be fat and overeat and all the things. And, and, it, and it's kind of been projected as the main source of all of our problems. But most of the studies cited with people who kind of project this like fructose-fearing situation, mm-hmm. um, all of the studies are pretty much done on mice. And uh, so I'm told this doesn't translate well to uh, human carbohydrate metabolism. And that's a big and. The mice in these studies are actually eating like huge amounts of fructose. So mm-hmm. it's usually like up to 60% of their calories and and that's um, massive. So you'd have to drink four 44 ounce super big gulps a day to get that much fructose. And um, last I checked, not that many people do that. So I mean, hey, you could, but not that many people do that. And one of the studies that was actually done on human beings (laughs) showed that uh, seven days of a high fructose diet increased fat deposits in the liver and muscles and um, increased fasting triglycerides and then decreased insulin sensitivity, which all sounds super bad and scary. But then when you look at how they implemented it, they actually had 16 guys consume a solution consisting of 3.5 grams of fructose, just plain fructose per kilogram. And it was a solution. So it was isolated fructose, not in a, in a whole form, per kilogram of weight every day. And so that would be like me eating around 240 grams of fructose a day, isolated, or 34 bananas. And I just don't really know of anybody who can eat 34 bananas a day. I mean, if you can, that's great. But usually that's not what people do. So, and that, and people don't eat isolated fructose. They eat it in a whole form. So essentially what we've done is isolated a specific nutrient and then literally dumped it into people's systems and then decided that it's causing all of the problems, which sounds like a lot of other things that have gotten us into uh, problems in the past with like horrible dietary recommendations. So... I mean, we all know that refined sugars in excess can be a problem, but we also know that there's a huge difference between isolated refined sugars and then sugars um, or carbohydrates as part of a whole food. So I think the takeaway is that refined, isolated sources of fructose 
in solutions should be limited. So things like soda, right? So that's kind of what we would think. Um, The harm comes when it's isolated and given in excess. And I don't think that it's applicable at all to fruit or um, whole foods that has fructose at all. And in fact, they did a meta-analysis of the clinical trials of evaluating fructose intake. And I don't know whether they use isolated or if they used whole food forms, but they found that um, 40 grams of fructose didn't pose threats at all, like Steph was talking about with the fatty liver disease and, or anything. And that's that 40 grams would be like three to six bananas a day or two to three apples. So don't tell Steph because she eats 12. Um, <laughs> so again, that might be dependent on somebody's activity level. So if Steph's dancing all day and she's at this congress where she's just like whipping her hair around and doing her thing and she 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 may be burning so many you know she may need so much energy that maybe that level of fructose that 40 grams of fructose a day didn't pose a threat for people who sat around all day and steph it doesn't do that so and also can i just throw in there real quick that chris masterjohn has done some really brilliant work demonstrating that like fatty liver problems may have more to do with choline deficiency than with actual fructose consumption. And so when they do studies on people like this, like are they checking their choline levels? Because people might be able to much more healthfully process fructose if your choline levels are adequate. It's interesting. Yeah. So I think the thing is here, fructose does not have magical fat storing powers and, you know, all the scary stuff. Stuff, but when like you eat processed sugar that contains sucrose, which is half fructose, or you eat isolated sources of fructose or consume it like like soda, then yeah, it's important to be aware of that, and that can cause problems. So within the context of working out, since that's what the question's actually about, there aren't any studies like I said before that that look at this whole fruit versus starch for replenishing muscle glycogen in whole, in whole form. Like there's nothing. And I get that because it's really hard to do that and keep the, you know, keep it all consistent when you're trying to, uh, find or, or like have consistent, consistent results and, and have people actually consume the exact same thing. So that's why they do these isolated solutions. Um, but there is some very small studies that have observed how fructose works pre, post, and and even during workout in a really small capacity. So pre-workout, I could really only find a reference to one study that looked at isolated consumption of sucrose and then how it's broken down in the body and how glucose and fructose are used and oxidized individually. And they, of course, found that glucose was used much more efficiently, so that's what they said they, they referred to as, as the perfect pre-workout kind of snack or whatever. But um, And during, there were a couple studies that performed similar like studies, and they found similar results. But there was actually uh, one study that seemed to be a lot more relevant to me, and it looked at how a mixture of carbohydrates provided fuel during activity. So it used isolated sources of sugar, specific, specifically maltodextrin, which is a complex carbohydrate made up of mostly glucose, and then fructose. And so it looked at how solutions containing maltodextrin, so it's just like a workout you know, drink that somebody would drink, and it contained maltodextrin, and then various concentrations of fructose were able to be used by the body during training. So what they found was that the low to medium fructose solutions, so they had all these different solutions. Some of them were just maltodextrin, and then some of them had 
a little bit of fructose and then medium fructose and then, and then high fructose. And they found that the low to medium fructose solution produced the most uh, efficient use of exogenous or ingested carbohydrate. But the fatigue and the perceived um, exercise stress and nausea were, were reduced with moderately high fructose doses. So, hello, like this... This combination of fructose and glucose, isn't that kind of what we find in real foods? Like that's what's found in in things like fruit. And, and, and people were able to use that and use that more efficiently and felt better than when, with just plain glucose. So I thought that was really interesting. And then the last one, was, um, I did find one that had some post-workout information um, and it looked at the efficacy of using combined glucose and fructose um, as a means to stimulate short-term post-exercise mus- muscle gly- glycogen synthesis compared to glucose only. So they looked at how a two-to-one glucose-to-fructose solution replenished muscles uh, glycogen shortly after training. And then they looked at it four hours post-exercise. So typically what these studies will do is they'll look at how how muscle cells are reacting or how cells in general are reacting like one like 30 minutes 90 minutes and then four hours and they found that muscle glycogen synthesis rates during the four-hour recovery period did not differ between the two conditions at all whatsoever so muscle glycogen resynthesis was exactly equal between the two solutions in other words both were equally effective at restoring muscle glycogen and did so almost equally so they didn't use just isolated fructose, but they did use isolated glucose, which I think we can find much more so in nature. So both of them were equally as effective, that fructose-glucose combination and then just the isolated glucose. So I think that that was a really roundabout way of just talking about or just <laughs> saying exactly what Stephanie said, which it's totally – I think it's 100, 100% okay to eat fruit post-workout. That's what the research is showing. That's what logic shows. I mean, more starchy, dense foods like bananas are are great. I typically recommend more dense foods like that anyway. And then in general, you don't need to pound carbohydrates post-workout unless you're really doing long distance or endurance training. But I mean, for normal day-to-day training, that maybe is a combination of anaerobic or strength training. Prioritize protein and then add carbohydrates in based on the length and intensity of the metabolic training that you do. So... I mean, so so just test things, right? And do what works for you and eat what you like and um, see how you recover based on the foods you eat. And and don't worry about, like, the exact type and what people say based on, I, I don't know, like, I don't know why people say stuff like that, like, without doing the research. Yeah, I, um, if we haven't convinced you yet that it's okay to consume fructose, another, my my professional opinion, another opinion out there is that the real like problem with fructose is actually just excess calorie consumption. And in these studies, and when we look at populations as a whole, like fructose consumption has increased calorie intake, you know, largely through the consumption of soda, liquid calories, like Noelle was talking about. So, um, and Stefan Guillenet writes on this all of the time, and he's brilliant, and he informs a lot of what I personally think, um, all of which is to say, like, within a normal calorie diet, like, fructose is okay. I, even if you look at hunter-gatherer cultures, there are some that consume really high doses of fructose, and they're perfectly fine, so. Right. 
So. So cool. Yep. Whatever. Moving on. Question number two is from Lydia. Hi, ladies. Loving my girl time with you. Um, I mean the podcast. So my husband and I have three wonderful kids. I'm back in school. He's 44. And we have three kids. Did I mention that already? We are satisfied, which is to say we are done having kids. So we are weighing our birth control options. We lean towards more secure, permanent ones. We don't we really don't want to have more kids. I'm willing to take hormonal birth control. Yeah, she's unwilling to take hormonal birth control. We really, really hate condoms and never use them well, if you know what I mean. So we are trying to decide between the copper IUD and a vasectomy. I am concerned, though, about the IUD because I used to have a lot of cramping and heavy bleeding during my periods. However, I think it's improved since going paleo. It's hard to tell what my periods are like, though, because I only started cycling again a couple of months ago since my last one was born. So until two months ago, I had a I hadn't had a period in over two years. It also gives me the heebie-jeebies since, as far as I understand, the IUD works by causing localized inflammation. As far as the vasectomy goes, I heard there were studies that linked it with prostate cancer or more aggressive forms of prostate cancer. So our question about that is, are there any significant health effects we should know about? I'm guessing within both of them. What is your opinion, ladies, in the IUD versus the snippy-snip debate? We are really looking forward to the stress-free lovin'. Thanks, Lydia, a loyal listener. All five. Booyah. So I guess this is when we had only had five. P.S. I will totally go dancing with you one day when I attend PaleFX or AHS. Great. We're going dancing. <laughs> Lydia, you are awesome. This whole thing. I was like trying. I want to I wanna go find her and give her a high five. Yeah, so I have I have data for you to help you make your decision. Um, starting with you with the IUD. So uh, the copper IUD does have pros and cons. Unfortunately, the natural methods of birth control none of like none of them are awesome. It's just my favorite one is pulling out. <laughs> like I mean, it, it's just it's the one that is going to affect your health the least. So the copper IUD, I think, has two primary drawbacks. The first is that, like you said, it does cause local inflammation. And for that reason, it often, though not always, makes women's periods heavier and more painful. Of course, that's not always the case, but it, like, the copper in there is like a spermicide or, like, it kills everything, right? And so it agitates your eggs <clears throat> and it agitates everything in there and just nothing can grow. And it's also inflammatory. So that's one problem. The other problem is that there have been a number of women who have experienced what we believe is copper toxicity on the copper IUD. You can enter into uh an imbalance between copper and zinc. We think that's the primary problem. And so something you may be able to do is take a zinc supplement while you're on the copper IUD, and that can help minimize the risk of developing copper toxicity, which can result in a huge array of symptoms that um, that can be like pretty, pretty devastating. You know, I know a lot of women who have suffered for years because of this and and not known it. So I caution you in that way 
Um, and you would have to play with the dosage of zinc that you take, but that could really help. And then, you know, that this uh, variety of birth control is one of the more effective. So you would be able to be pretty sure that you would not have any more children. Um, another method that is pretty effective for making sure you don't have kids is getting a vasectomy. So I've done, okay, so this is the problem with the vasectomy problem. <laughs> there, the first time people discovered that there may be a link between a vasectomy and prostate cancer was way back in 1993, which I wish weren't that long ago, but it turns out it was actually quite a long time ago now. <laughs> And what, but what it was, was a statistical link. Like they found in this study done in 1993 that there was an increased risk of prostate cancer for men who had had vasectomies. And between then and 2014, 21 years later, nobody found any evidence whatsoever that this link was true. So we appeared to be in the clear and everybody's like, woohoo, vasectomies, let's get them all the time. And then in the summer of 2014, which was less than a year ago now, Harvard did this gigantic study and they also found a statistical link between men who have vasectomies and men who develop um, not just like regular prostate cancer, but aggressive, deadly forms of prostate cancer. And you hear that and you're like, well, crap. Okay, but this data... Whenever you find statistical data, you they never you don't know the why, right? We have a correlation, but we don't know what the cause is. Some people think that we actually find this increased risk statistically because the men who are getting vasectomies are just being screened for prostate cancer more often than the men who aren't getting vasectomies. Ergo, we're just finding it more often in the people who get the vasectomies. And so that is a real possibility for explaining the statistical link between the two. However, the people who did this study at Harvard wanted to be really careful about controlling for this variable and other kinds of variables. And I haven't read the study myself, so I can't weigh in on um, whether or not I think they significantly controlled for variables. I think it's almost impossible to significantly control for all the variables in studies. Like, I just, I do. And the increased, increased risk of prostate cancer, even while significant, which means even while it appears to not be due to chance, is pretty small. It's like a 20% increase. And so if 16 in 1,000 people who get vasectomies suffer from prostate cancer, a 20% risk is, you know, another three people. So the chances go from 16 to a thousand uh, in a thousand to 19 in a thousand so there's that but we don't know nobody has been able to figure out the biochemical connection between a vasectomy and prostate cancer um i personally don't have any ideas i haven't found anybody who has any ideas and so we don't know the physiology that could explain that. So that means, A, it could be a known, or B, it could not exist, and it could just be the statistical thing about people getting screened for the cancer and the like. 
So that's kind of all the data I have for you in terms of weighing the relative risks. There are so many men in the world who get vasectomies and um, don't get prostate cancer. So that's one thing. And there are many women in the world who get the copper IUD and don't get copper toxicity. And that risk decreases when you take zinc. So we, so far as we know. So either way, I, th- I think no matter which method you go with, I think you're probably, I think you're probably set up to uh, be okay. And, but again, like there are relative risks on each end and I can't make that decision for you. Um, I don't know, Noel, if you want to weigh in with anything. You're so smart. Thanks. I can't believe you just knew all that information about vasectomies. Yeah, well, birth control is important to me. Yeah. Um, have you ever had the IUD? No, I have never used a method of birth control beyond the prophylactic stuff. Okay. So I um, I actually have had the copper IUD. I was looking for – I tried hormonal birth control and was like within two weeks was just an absolute mess. And this was actually – I mean I, I was sort of into that holistic mindset but not really at all and didn't even think about what taking hormones – if how that would affect me. So I decided to – after two weeks, I could not do that anymore. And decided to try the copper IUD. And there are complications that you can have with it. And, of course, this doesn't happen with with a lot of people. But for me, it was actually inserted. um, It might have – I think it was inserted incorrectly. I don't think it moved. I think it was actually put in incorrectly. And so the IUD looks like a T. And one of those arms was, like, really – pushing into the wall of my uterus Mm. and then I went to um we moved to Japan for a little bit and I was there for two months and I didn't really notice it too much um it did sort of bother me but when I came back home it started to get really bad to where my uterus would like seize and cramp and it happened especially when I was like riding in arrow position on the road bike because I was kind of like your pelvis kind of tilts forward and you have that tilt and you, you kind of crunch that your abdomen a little bit. And so it started to get really bad. And I went back to uh, my doctor and then they couldn't find it. And so I had to get, you know, the whole x-ray thing done. They ended up um, finding the strings and being able to pull it out. Otherwise I would have had to go and gotten surgery, which that would have just been, I would have been so, that would have been really scary. Cause I was by myself. My husband was still living in Japan, but um, yeah, it was just not a good experience at all. And I had not, I think a lot of it might've had to do with the fact that um, I had never had children before. So they do warn against that saying, okay, maybe you should wait. Um, And I probably would definitely recommend that to people if they asked my personal opinion just because of my experience um, because it just was not fun. And I had the only two other people that I know that have had IUDs have both had complications, too. So that's not to say that I'm not trying to tell you that, like, you're going to have problems, but there's you also have to weigh the risks of all of those things. Like, I don't know. You just kind of have to um, be wary of that and be and be ready to deal with all of that. So. I think what Stephanie mentioned, too, about the whole copper toxicity thing, I think coming from a holistic perspective, it's interesting to me. 
uh, the idea of just putting copper in your body, I, I don't, it doesn't necessarily make me feel too comfortable. Um, obviously, you have to make that decision for yourself, but you're asking our opinion, so that's mine. There hasn't really been any studies that looked um, at this since the 80s and the 90s, which is unfortunate. And, and they stopped really looking into it any further. The idea of this whole, like, okay, copper, it does increase locally, so like within the lining of the uterus and the fallopian tubes, but copper levels they studies found that copper levels in the blood didn't increase and i feel like that's sort of misleading because um and steph maybe you can speak to this further after i'm done with my whole rant here but um once you when you test blood levels of something that's not really giving you the whole picture so for example with thyroid if you test thyroid hormone levels in the blood that doesn't say much about actually what's getting into cells so just because that copper levels in the blood don't increase when you're on the copper iud i don't think that that means that we're totally in the clear um and why this is so important is copper like minerals work synergistically in the body so copper actually works really closely with zinc and they actually work antagonistic uh, Lee, they have this antagonistic relationship, which, mean, which means if one level declines, then the other rises. And there's a lot of minerals that work this way in the body. And that's why we have to be so careful about taking high doses of isolated nutrients if we actually don't have a deficiency. So according to um, like people in the field of functional medicine and some of the leaders, they actually say that the most common observed mineral imbalance is insufficient zinc with excess copper and um, some research suggests that it, they need to be in, an, in a specific ratio, so like 8 to 1 or 12 to 1. So if you can imagine if you if you have the copper ID or you're toxic in copper, you have too much copper, that's going to further decrease um, and have like you're going to have a perceived zinc deficiency. So copper can easily become dominant, apparently. I didn't actually know that until I did some research on it. And... When that does, it's going to suppress levels of other trace minerals. And grains and other plant-based foods have this high kind of copper to zinc ratio as well as – and you can also find it in things like water because of pipes and uh, some medications. And so I don't think that copper toxicity is like – I don't think that the IUD is like the thing that is causing copper toxicity. I think it's probably adding to an already existing problem, if that makes sense. Um and the only other thing I would recommend is if you do um, decide to go with the vasectomy, there are things that you can do to make sure that your husband bounces back quickly, and which is pretty important. Um, so I would I recommend taking collagen, which is the most uh, abundant protein in the body. Anytime anybody has surgery. And you can supplement with collagen hydrolysate or gelatin. And there's a company, it's called Green Lakes, I think. They make that. Do you take collagen, Steph? I don't take anything. Okay. So you can supplement with it. You, The gelatin actually turns into a gel when you mix it with water. But the collagen hydrolysate is just, you can just put it in water and it's fine. So sometimes I add that back to um, my bone broth. but And it's all, that's actually really good for healing the gut, side note. Um, I would also recommend supplementing with zinc. So zinc is really important for the prostate in general, but it also is really important for um, immune system function and reducing inflammation and tissue regeneration. So fat-soluble vitamins, 
going to say it, fermented cod liver oil. I think that would be the best <laughs> thing to supplement with here, too. I will link to all these in the show notes, which is coconutsandkettleballs.com or paleoforwomen.com slash episode eight. So episode and then the number eight. So that fermented cod liver oil has all the fat-soluble vitamins, A, D, E, and K. And um, consider emulsified vitamin D, which may improve your sleep, according to Steph. And uh, vitamin C, because it's obviously an immune system kind of booster and post-surgery probiotics can never get enough probiotics and then magnesium because sometimes a lot of people have problems with with gut issues and getting it all moving again so that's what i think um about the blood thing yeah i mean you're right there are in all of the systems and all of the things that happen in the bodies it's just much more complicated for example like you can get your testosterone levels tested, but there's a, you have to differentiate between free testosterone and everything else because so much testosterone is, can be bound to other molecules. Um, or I, so like that's one way, right? Something can, uh, a molecule can be bound up with something else or it can, um, be free. It can be like at a certain level in the bloodstream, but not be high enough in the cells because there's a particular channel that needs to be open in the cells. And if you don't have the channel open, then you're not going to be able to get the, you know, the free magnesium or whatever, or calcium into the cell. So, um, yes, you're right, right? Like the copper levels in the blood, really don't say much at all and same goes for zinc really don't say much at all about how properly they are being balanced inside of your cells also i want to throw one more thing on here before we move on to the next question which is so there is a new method of male birth control that is supposed to be debuting here in the states in 2017 i know that sounds far away but that's two years so something you could consider is doing the IUD for a couple years and then if that's not an awesome experience or what have you or you don't want to do it forever, you could switch to this new method, which is going to be a gel injection into um, you know, some of the pipes, into the vast deferens of the male reproductive system and that sort of like blocks sperm rather than prevents you from being able to, you know, whatever manufacture and deliver it in the snipping right you don't have to snip anything it will just sort of block it and i mean this hasn't been tested for a prostate risk because people haven't been using it yet but that is something that appears to be on the horizon and maybe something you could do down the line if you are you know either for some reason still don't want to do either of these options So I'm just letting you know that's coming and letting everybody know because it's super exciting. And it's also reversible for um, all of the people out there who are still looking to conceive someday. Um, Guys can get this gel inserted and then uh, taken out. And it's, I don't know, it seems like a birth control dream come true. And probably the only reason we didn't discover it previously is, you know, sexism. So. I knew that was coming. Yeah, well. (laughs) whatever whatevs i don't i don't know if we have time for this third question because we're already sitting at 15 minutes (laughs) um wow what 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 was the uh i wanted to talk about it okay we can save it we can save it no we can go deep i mean 
I, I would just rather move on and then, because I don't want to keep going over an hour. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So we'll our bonus section, yeah, we're going to do the, the, a few other ones next week. So our bonus section is about breakfast. So it's not necessarily like, okay, let's recommend breakfast, but I would just love to know and have the discussion of what, what we eat for breakfast. So what, what, is, what is it that you typically eat? I don't do breakfast any differently than I do any other meal. And it's so weird to me that people are like hung up on the idea of breakfast foods. Like what? And and the idea of breakfast foods, like they're all kind of sweet. And like, why do we have to have something desserty for breakfast? It just, it blows my mind. So my breakfast varies because what I eat throughout the day varies, but pretty much the things I eat are ground beef or organ meats, if I'm doing organs that day. Um, I have ground beef and some veggies and olive oil and fruit. And those are the things that I eat 100% of the time. So if I'm... uh, Today was a bit of an unorthodox day because my sleep schedule was off. Um, But I would typically have like... I don't know, a cup of mango, an apple or two, a quarter pound of ground beef, and a huge heaping plate of lettuce and spinach, and maybe some tomatoes with olive oil and salt. And that's it. That was breakfast? Yep. Wow. That's every, that's like every meal. Nice. I so eat that three times a day. You don't eat eggs? Um, I do sometimes. So... I am a MTHFR sufferer, which is a genetic mutation that sort of messes with the body's detox pathways. And I believe that the MTHFR explains why this is the case for me, but foods with high levels of sulfur in them give me acne. So that's like broccoli and kale and eggs. Isn't that strange? So I don't eat eggs a ton. Um, I try to eat them... I try to eat them as often as possible because I know that they're super healthy, but I like my skin being clear. And I also don't like the way that the excess sulfur sort of plays with the um, methylation pathway. So um, I do love eggs, but I don't eat them every day. No. Hmm. Interesting. Um, Cool. Yeah. So I am a creature of habit too. I, we try to like pack our, we have these little tin cans that are um, airtight, and we just pack everything basically like a lunch, a breakfast and a lunch in one thing, and so that we can take that anywhere. And so my husband, we both go in to work, and then we work out, and then we, I come back. I'll either go to like Starbucks or whatever, or here, come back here and work, depending on what the work is that I have to do. And then he works all day and doesn't come home till like seven. So we boil, I don't know, like thirty six hard boiled eggs on a Sunday, and then. Maybe that'll make us to like Thursday and we have to do two more batches of hard boiled eggs. So he has like four and I have two a day. I used to do more than that, but I I think it gets a little nauseating. And I did. I got a little worried at one point that I was, you know, there's a lot of you have to be careful with foods that you eat every day. And I do recognize that, especially ones that like eggs that can cause um, or, or that people can be allergic to or have a sensitivity to. 
and I removed them recently for three or four weeks. So typically I'll, I'll try to do that here or there just to make sure and see that I'm, I'm not developing any sort of sensitivity or that it's still working well for me. Uh, but I, right now I'm doing two a day and then I usually have like broccoli, like raw broccoli and carrots to, uh, tossed in olive oil and telling you really doesn't make me feel weird. Cause you do vegetables too. Like usually when I try, I like love vegetables in the morning, like especially, uh, tossed in olive oil and salt. So people think I'm the weirdest person when I, when I eat that for breakfast, but that's what we do. And then that kind of just rolls into lunch and I usually have some sort of like I'll have some sausages already cooked or I'll eat whatever I had um, for dinner the night before. So this morning I had like we had I did a whole chicken in the crock pot. So I just had chicken and then eggs. And sometimes we have all a bunch of whole a whole bunch of pre-cooked sweet potatoes in the fridge, too. So if I work out, I'll eat that. And yeah, it's super yummy. And then the weekends are the best because then we can do like bacon and and actually fried eggs. And we do venture out and cook like almond meal pancakes and waffles which i have a recipe for on my site that i can link to and i also i understand when people have um egg allergies they still want to like have fun with their breakfast i think breakfast is just like all the breakfast foods are just good like i think it, it people i don't know dinner is kind of like dinner like you we've kind of boxed ourselves into eating certain foods obviously at certain times of the day but breakfast, for some reason, is can be more indulgent for people. Does that make sense? Like, I it's like dessert and breakfast, or like the times that you can get creative. Like, when else in, during your day are you going to eat a massive like stack of pancakes with whipped cream and syrup and and fruit, and then have bacon as a side? You know what I mean? Like, it's I think never that's, because that sounds terrible. Oh well, I get it, but <laughs> I'm talking about like ninety percent of the population. You know what I mean? Like. Yeah. It's like all the breakfast foods. I get it because I love them too. On the weekends, I'm like, yes. So, I, I mean, I just try to like cook a little bit more. So, I actually have time to. But, yeah. And and uh, I have a, a post too that's for people who don't want eggs or don't like eggs or can't tolerate eggs. And it's, um, it's just seven egg-free like real food breakfast recipes. And in that, I have like sautéed kale with like diced uh, bacon and – like a s- awesome smoothie, which is going to start popping up more in my world now that it's warming up. And um, and this really cool, uh, it, it's a lot like oatmeal. I used to eat oatmeal all the time, but it's like a oatmeal that's just made from like ground, like seeds and nuts and some like dried coconut. So, and then you just pour warm coconut milk and you over top of it and you kind of stir it in a saucepan and it creates like this like jelly kind of oatmeal-y thing. It's awesome. Hmm. If you ate nuts, I would do that for. I would make that for you. Yeah, I can't. They 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 make me depressed. Depressed. Depressed and fat. Yeah, it's amazing. I gain weight and I get suicidal when I eat nuts. I'm not even kidding. Like they increase my estrogen levels so much. Wow. That's yeah. not good. I get so depressed, so depressed. Did when you I notice that when you were in Spain and you were eating nuts? Yes, I did. Really? <laughs> and I and I like, I was literally laying in bed one day crying when it occurred to me that it may be from the cashews that I was eating, mm. and I haven't touched them since. Wow. Yeah. And this isn't the first time I've noticed. I just, I thought maybe it was different this time, but it wasn't. Yeah. 
I don't know. My body is a delicate flower. It really is. Yeah. You are special. <laughs> you stop that. <laughs> You're a good special. Oh, boy. Okay. Let's leave people be. Yes, please. <laughs> That's it for us today. Thank gosh, right? If you could... Please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. It would mean so much to us. We love hearing from you. We love seeing what people are saying. It makes us giggle. So thank you in advance for doing so. For more from us, you can find Stephanie at paleoforwomen.com and me, Noelle, at coconutsandkettlebells.com. Talk to you next week. 